You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Appreciate that song. Brought back memories for me. I'll spare you that. But it's kind of a happy, sad moment, wasn't it, up here? I mean, you so happy that the young Walners are up front and, and singing, but kind of sad that the, the dad kind of, every time, there's time in a dad's every life, right? You got to take a step back. And the visual display of that this morning. Appreciate all of you. Romans chapter 10, really looking at the, the first verse here this morning, want to basically introduce the, the first, the, this chapter, because there is a, there is a break. We said that uh, chapters 9 through 11 function as uh, part of Paul's whole argument here in that the word of God has not failed, in that Israel has rejected the Messiah. But if you notice, and you probably will as you read chapter 9 and then get to Romans 10, that there is a little bit of shift that takes place. And we want to talk about that this morning. If you would stand with me and let's just read the first four verses here together. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear with them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray that as we read this text, that our heart's desire and prayer would be for those that we know that don't, that don't know you, that are far off, is that they might be saved. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text, we look at it in view, view of all that has come before it, and we see ourselves with an air of reality and realize what you have done for us so that we might pray this prayer the way Paul did. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe seated. We need to take just a minute and kind of kind of go back 
where we've been in the book of Romans, mostly in chapter 9 for a lot of us. Not a lot needs to be said here. We've spent, a, we've spent 11 weeks in Romans chapter 9. It is one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible. And don't say that lightly. There are some very difficult books and chapters in the Bible, Romans 9 is one of them, and in that chapter there's a question, and it goes something like this. If Israel, with all of its immense spiritual privilege, has rejected or is rejected by God, then God's word to them must have failed. After all, didn't God make promises to Israel? And if Israel then is rejecting the Messiah, Jesus, and God is in turn rejecting them, then it must mean that God's word has failed. For some of those looking at this situation and seeing the rejection of the Jewish people of Messiah, Jesus, this must mean to them God has said something that is not coming true. He proclaimed something concerning this nation, and it isn't happening. All of this was supposed to lead up to the Messiah, and the Messiah gets here, and all of these people are placing their faith and trust in Jesus. But by and large, the nation of Israel is rejecting. And Paul's concern is that if God's word has failed, then everything comes crushing down. And he is saying, this is not so. Paul clearly says at the onset of Romans 9 that God's word has not failed. Really, Romans 9 through 11 is really showing that, making this argument God's word has not failed to do that. He points out uh, seven different things throughout. In Romans 9, we pick up God's sovereign election. And he says that his choice was demonstrated over and over here. He starts with Abraham. He chose him from a, a pagan people. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And the bottom line is that God is God and he has mercy on who he has mercy and shows compassion on who he shows compassion. He's the potter. Humanity is the clay and he does what he wishes because he knows best for he is God. This is a a marvelous doctrine because this is really the only way that it can be. We've shown this in detail. I think that God is the only hero of our story of redemption. And if we had to summarize why Romans 9 is so difficult, we would say that it is, is, it is because it concerns this area of God's sovereign choice. This is what we call vertical theology. How God relates to us. How does God interact with us? It's looking at theology from the from us going up. And we must affirm 
that salvation is a work of God. But we must also understand that there's so much mystery wrapped up in that that we all cannot grasp it. I mean, we are finite humans trying to understand the infinite. We all fall short here and recognize that there are so many things that are far beyond our minds to grasp, but on the same token, we realize the things that are revealed here belong to us. They are for us. And there is some of this that we ought to look into and we ought to affirm because God has revealed it to us for a reason. But this doesn't change the fact that it's all difficult. We must also make the point that Paul's overall argument of why God's word has not failed goes throughout chapter 11. And by the end of of chapter 9, and if you remember this, Paul starts on another point of his argument. It's the third tier of his argument, and that is that God's word, God's promises have not failed in regard to Israel because the failure of the Jews to believe was their fault, not God's. Now at this point, that really goes, this, this really goes throughout chapter 10. So, well, someone could hear Paul speaking in Romans 9 of election and God's sovereign choice to save some and then turn around and say something like, well, if God shows mercy to some and not others, then God is responsible for those who do not believe. That would be the objection that some might make here. And Paul is saying, starting at the end of Romans 9, is that God's promises have not failed because the failure of the Jews to believe is their own fault, not God's fault. We must always remember that Romans 9 presents both God's mercy to undeserving sinners and his justice on those who deserve it. The fact is, those that God does not grant mercy, both choose their sin and their rebellion against God and deserve the punishment for their crimes against God. Romans 9 might be difficult because of the doctrine of election and picture of God is absolutely sovereign. But on the other end, what we see then in the last verses of Romans 9 throughout chapter 10 is the other side. And that is human responsibility. The fact is, God's word teaches both of these. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I had a professor once that wrote two parallel lines on the board. Just two lines. And he said, these are like train tracks. They run uh, parallel to one another. They, they go a long distance, the same distance apart. They're not off in the slightest, because if they were off in the, the slightest, they would intersect at some point. They function as train tracks. He proceeded to label them. And on one side, he wrote human responsibility or human freedom. And on the other side, he wrote God's sovereignty. So the picture then is God's sovereignty running separately 
meaning not influenced by human freedom and responsibility. But the amazing thing is that human responsibility and freedom runs perfectly parallel to God's sovereignty. Never interacting with it, intersecting it. They don't cross, run right along the same course like wheels of a train track. They might be on two different rails, but they are always headed in the same direction. One cannot go left and the other right. They never intersect. I think this is a beautiful picture. Does the Bible teach that we are free and responsible? Absolutely. It doesn't teach that God is sovereign in the respect that we are all robots or puppets and God is this divine puppet master controlling our every move. We have real freedom and real responsibility for the actions that we take. But there's also a sense in which every choice that we make runs perfectly parallel to the sovereign plan of God. Let's give this a little more of a practical illustration. When one comes to faith, for instance, there are two sides to look at that event. You can look at it from one train track or the other. The proper perspective is to back up and look at both. But we can look at it vertically. This is from the the vantage point of Romans 9, God's sovereign choice. We can focus on the sovereignty track. God chooses him in us before the foundation of the world. That in love, God predestined us like Jacob before he had done anything good or bad. Before we were born, God chose us to be conformed in him. Some people have, have emphasized this track so much that they forgot about the other to such a degree that they've suggested that that even missions and evangelism are not needed because of God's sovereign election. In other words, they're saying there's not two lines here running parallel. There is just one. Others have remained frozen in their unbelief, using the doctrine of election as an excuse whereby they say they can do nothing about their situation and they remain content living in unbelief. And they believe that if they end up in hell one day, it will not be their own fault. It will be God's for not saving them. Others have emphasized the other side of the track. They've neglected God's sovereignty. They've seen faith as something that a person actually does. They they see it as an act that brings about certain results. Others have gone so far as to suggest that God's involvement in some coming to faith is what they call previent grace. That's not a word that's in the Bible. It's not a doctrine that's even biblical. But this is how major denominations will emphasize human freedom and responsibility over God's sovereignty, they say that what God does is he takes and grants previent grace or a a grace to everyone. He blankets everyone with a, a certain grace. And basically this grace, what it does is it nullifies the effects of the fall and allows people to make a free choice to accept or reject Christ. So it's a grace that comes before justification and allows all people to make a free choice apart from the effects of the fall. What this doctrine then does, besides 
making the entire fall a mute point. But it tries to give credit to the person for responding in faith, and it tries to maintain then their responsibility for accepting or rejecting the gospel by giving them the power to do that. What this view fails to comprehend is that the Bible teaches both tracks. God's sovereignty on one end, there's no need for prevent grace, and freedom and responsibility on the other. Is that hard to grasp? Yes. But is it true? Yes. We don't have to make up doctrines to give humans real freedom and responsibility. The Bible does that just the same. Both God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility are both in Scripture. They both run parallel to one another. The fact is, one that is called by God, who God allows them to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel, these ones freely choose to embrace it. Once the the veil of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 has been removed from the eyes of the unbeliever, and they see the truth of the gospel for what it is, they freely respond to it. They embrace it. They cling to it. They recognize their only hope in life and death is in Jesus Christ. The reverse is true. Those that are not believers are completely content and happy and freely choose to remain an unbeliever. They might not use that kind of language, but to use the language of Ephesians 2, those who are lost are completely content living in the passions of their flesh and carrying out the desires of their body and mind. The fact is, because God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility run parallel the way they do, God never draws anyone to faith kicking and screaming, just as he will not prevent one from responding to the gospel and placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ who desires to do so. So if we want to really oversimplify Romans 9 and Romans 10, we would say we see the sovereignty track in Romans 9 and the human responsibility track in Romans 10. As Paul makes it clear that the Bible teaches both. It's not a contradiction. It may be extremely difficult for us to understand and wrap our minds around, but just because things are difficult does not mean that they are contradictory. Just because we're never going to understand these things in their fullest on this side of heaven or maybe even in heaven doesn't mean that they're contrary to one another. It's the the finite trying to grasp the infinite. Just because we cannot grasp everything about God does not mean that it's a contradiction. Think about the Trinity, for instance. Much of the doctrine of the Trinity is far beyond us. How can God be both three and one? There's mystery there for sure, but we affirm certain truths about the Trinity. We must. We believe that God is one in being and three persons. 
That the Son, for instance, is God, but the Son is neither the Father nor the Spirit. Just as the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but is God. There are certain some, there's certainly some mind-blowing things there, but it doesn't mean that it's a contradiction. It's not. Just because we cannot grasp God does not mean it's contradictory. Actually, there are a lot of things that are complex that we don't understand, but are not contradictions. I learned this last week that the boiling point of propane was minus 44 degrees Fahrenheit. That does not make sense to my simple mind. Scott Rink texted me, said, did you know? For something to boil, it has to be hot. Minus 44 degrees is not hot. But just because I can't comprehend that does not mean it's a contradiction. In any case, the Bible teaches both. God's sovereignty when it comes to election, something that we've spent a considerable amount of time on. But now Paul's point is that because of this fact, the Jews here, or anyone for that matter, that rejects Jesus cannot blame God because he showed mercy to some. In other words, we are turning our attention to human responsibility. God is not obligated to show mercy. I think that's Paul's point. Let me make something else abundantly clear at the onset here. And that is if, if one is lost, if one is without Christ, it is not because you are not elect. It is because you are rejecting Christ. I've heard that argument so many times. Somebody goes to hell, it's because God didn't choose them. No, they're rejecting Christ. The blame cannot be placed on anyone else. Let me to show you in chapter 10 how Paul makes this point. Just look at Romans chapter 10 for a moment. Look down to verse 8. The word that is proclaimed near you, it's so near, it's in your mouth. In other words, you have this word, so what's your excuse? The gospel's been proclaimed. Now, what are you going to do with it? In verse 11. The scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, if you are put to shame, it is because you do not believe. Where is the blame placed on you? In verse 12, God makes no distinction. He will save all who call on him. All who desire to be saved, he, all who call on him, he will save them. If you don't call on him, who is to blame? You. In verse 16, the blame is placed squarely on those who do not believe. He says, but they have not obeyed the gospel and and believed what they had heard from those proclaiming it. The gospel is there. It's being heralded and proclaimed. And there are people who are not believing. They don't reject. Verse 21 is a picture of God holding out his hand to undeserving, disobedient people with the offer of salvation. And they just reject it. The image is clear. God's sovereignty brings about His purpose in salvation, but the responsibility for those who reject the call of God falls squarely on themselves and not God. 
So God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility are two sides of the same coin. There's mystery, and we're not meant to totally grasp all of it, but like the doctrine of the Trinity, there are certain truths here that we must affirm. Now, as you are looking at the start of chapter 10, notice something that is extremely interesting. Paul begins chapter 10 much the same way he begins chapter 9. Remember at the onset of chapter 9, Paul told us that he was in unceasing anguish for the Jews, the physical nation of Israel, because despite of all the advantages that they had, they were still rejecting the Messiah. And this breaks the heart of Paul. And now again, in the middle of his argument as to why God's word has not failed, he says that it is both his heart's desire and prayer that these might be saved. I mean, if you start thinking about this, we often skip past this little statement as an introductory thing, but it's really a remarkable statement from from Paul. At this point in the argument, especially. Remember, the, the current point of Paul is that the rejection of Jesus on the behalf of Israel is not the fault of God, both because, not because God didn't choose them, but it's their own fault. In other words, If they die apart from Christ, there will be no one to blame but themselves for rejecting Jesus. Now, I say that what Paul says here is pretty remarkable because at this point, Paul has not gotten so frustrated that he's just written these people off. I mean, we've all been frustrated with people, right? Our family, our friends, probably the ones that we get most frustrated with. Because we want them to believe. We want them to embrace Jesus Christ. And we see better than anyone else all of the advantages and opportunities that have been placed before them. And they still are rejecting Jesus. They've had all of these chances to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to turn from their life of sin, to rest in what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. And over and over, they continue to turn from Jesus and turn to their sin and embrace their sin and their lust of their lifestyle and all of these things. They gratify the pleasures of their life instead of Jesus Christ. And we get frustrated. And we get so frustrated with them, there becomes a point that we just write them off. And we say, you know, I've done the best I can do. I've done all I can do in this situation. They're on their own. It's not my fault anymore. I I, I don't know what else to do. I think what's happening here in our text is that Paul is acknowledging that these people have no one to blame but themselves for their unbelief. But at the same time, Paul is not willing to write them off. He's saying, I will not write these people off. This is a remarkable thing at this point in his argument. Because this is the point when Paul said, they've been preached to. The gospel has been proclaimed to them. And they're still rejecting it. Just let them go. I mean, for us, we often think that there are people around us that are just too far gone. 
whether it's by their behavior, they continue in sin. They're so deep in sin that we don't see any hope of redemption for them. Perhaps they, they adhere to a, another religion or not, a, not a, believe in God at all. And we think that there's no hope for people like this. We're going to go spend our time somewhere else on other people. We've done the best we can with them. Now we're just going to write them off as well. For some of us, the, the sin and rebellion of others make us so angry that we just, we just write them off as well. And it gets to a point that it's, it's not so much because of their, their sinfulness, but we just, we just can't be around them anymore. And there's such disdain for the, the person. I just bring all of this up because Paul has had every reason to write these Jewish people off. They continued in their unbelief and self-righteousness, suggesting over and over again that people could only be saved by works of the law. Paul saw their hypocrisy over and over and over, just as Jesus did. We could go back to Matthew 23 if we had time. Jesus had some very strong words to say. Paul saw the same. These people, not only they believe this way, but they treated Paul poorly. I mean, to say that they treated Paul poorly is an understatement. In 2 Corinthians 11.24, we read that five times at the hands of the Jews, he received 40 lashes minus one. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned, left for dead. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, if anyone would have the reason to write these people off in his mind, it should have been Paul. But instead, he said, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. And my heart's desire, even knowing that nobody's going to be to blame, but them in the end, my heart's desire and my prayer is to God for them that they might be saved. Now, I will say this as clear as possible. It doesn't matter what anyone has done to you or what they believe or how many times that you shared the gospel with them, how many times they continue in their unbelief, how many times they do things to you that make you look like a fool. There is never a reason to write anyone off. I think some of our problem and why we're so quick to write people off is that we don't see ourselves in the proper light. We need to go back and see ourselves with a, an air of realism. The fact is, Paul understood that he was no better than those who were beating him. As, just as we are no better than those who might make fun of us or ostracize us for our faith. The only difference between Paul and them is that God saved him. And as we have seen, God is the only hero of that story. The doctrine of election is so important at this point. Paul has nothing to brag about. Absolutely nothing. In fact... Paul used to be on the other end of the whip. 
He was complicit in the death of Christians. We're not different than this. The only difference between us and those people who are lost that we're sharing our faith with is that we've been saved by grace. There's no reason to boast. We're not smarter. We're not more intelligent. No reason to boast in that God, in His sovereignty, showed us mercy when we deserve justice. We're not the hero of that story. God is. And we should see the plight of others around us and their rejection and their unbelief and realize that if they're going to be saved, it is going to be because God has shown them mercy when all they deserve is God's justice. When we start seeing people around us with that bit of realism that we deserve the wrath of God, the only reason that we're not getting that is because God in His sovereign mercy stepped in, that we're not better, we're just saved by grace, it really should lead us to the response that Paul has here in the first verse of Romans chapter 10, and that is pleading with God to save them. All evangelism starts this way. It must. Going to the person who can make it happen. Some people at this point have a great desire for lost people and they go and they share their faith with them and they plead for them to come to faith. Desire is good and I, I, I applaud the effort. We need people with, with great desire to see the lost come to faith. But if we really desire that people come to faith, then we must go first to the only one that can make that happen. For we realize that salvation is in the hand of an all-wise, an almighty God, and not our own effort. Not on the behalf of some goodness that we or them can conjure up in order to get them to turn to Jesus. If it's truly our heart's desire that people around us come to faith then we must pray to God for that to happen because it is only God that removes the barrier and allows the sinner to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel for what it is. To embrace it in faith. Now some might say at this point, well, if all of this is in the hand of God, if He makes it happen, then why does He need us at all? It's a bad way to word the question, but that's the way the question is often worded. On one hand, we need to say, God does not need us. God does not need anything. God is God. But God, in His wisdom, has made a way for people to come to faith in Him. And that way is through a proclamation of the gospel. In fact... Paul is going to say later in this chapter, how are people to hear the gospel and respond to it without somebody heralding the gospel to them? The answer is they will not. The fact is, the God who ordained the ends also ordained the means. In other words, the God who ordained that that Colt come to faith also ordained that there would be people who in his life would share the truth of the gospel with him. 
who would desire Him to know the truth of the gospel, who would pray and plead to God to bring that about in His life, that He might place His faith and trust in Jesus Christ and love Him enough to share it with Him. The God who ordained the ends also ordains the means to the end. One other thing that we shouldn't miss here is as you get done reading Romans 9 about the sovereignty of God and this big picture and your mind is so wrapped up in God's sovereign choice. And then you get to Romans 10. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Let me just say this. All prayer is worthwhile. All prayer in this regard is worthwhile. Never think that my prayers don't matter. We plead with God for salvation. Evangelism starts on our knees. If we're really concerned with those around us and their plight and where they're going to go, if we realize that the doctrine of the Bible teaches that there are two groups of people, and in the end, God in His mercy has saved some, and they'll end up in, with Him for all eternity, and there's another group that end up bearing the wrath of God. If we truly believe that, then we must believe that it is only God who can take people from spiritual death to spiritual life and bring about new birth in their life. And we, as the people of God, Pray and plead with God for that to happen. God, open their eyes. Allow them to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Use me if you want. I'll be there. I'll be ready. I'll be willing. Open up conversations. Use me. Use somebody else. I don't care. Bring them to faith, please. How many times do we pray prayers that, to God to plead with, to bring people to faith because we recognize that He is the only one who can make that happen? I think that's where this chapter starts. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.